0: Part 3. Chapter 1. Section 116. Of The Life of Jesus Critically Examined by David Friedrich Strauss. Translated by George Eliot. This LibriVox, according, is in the public domain. Part 3. History of the Passion, Death, and Resurrection of Jesus. Chapter 1. Relation of Jesus to the Idea of a Suffering and Dying Messiah. His Discourses on His Death, Resurrection, and Second Advent section 116 origin of the discourses on the second advent the result just obtained involves a consequence to avoid which has been the object of all the futile attempts at explanation hitherto examined if namely jesus conceived and declared that the fall of the jewish sanctuary would be shortly followed by his visible return and the end of the world while it is now nearly eighteen hundred years since the one catastrophe and yet the other has not arrived it follows that in this particular he was mistaken hence expositors who so far yield to exegetical evidence as to agree with us in the above conclusion concerning the meaning of the discourse before us seek from dogmatical considerations to evade this legitimate consequence. Hengstenberg, as is well known, has advanced, in relation to the history of the Hebrew prophets, the following theory, which has met with approval from other expositors. To the spiritual vision of these men, he says, future things presented themselves not so much through the medium of time as of space, as it were, in great pictures, And thus, as is the case in paintings or perspective views, the most distant object often appeared to them to stand immediately behind the nearest, foreground and background being intermingled with each other. And this theory of a perspective vision we are to apply to Jesus, especially in regard to the discourse in question. But we may here cite the appropriate remark of Paulus, that as one who in a perspective externally presented does not know how to distinguish distances labors under an optical delusion that is errs so likewise in an internal perspective of ideas if such there be the disregard of distances must be pronounced an error consequently this theory does not show that the above men did not err but rather explains how they easily might err. Even Olshausen considers this theory, which he elsewhere adopts, insufficient in the present case to remove all appearance of error on the part of Jesus, and he therefore seeks to derive special grounds of justification from the particular nature of the event predicted. In the first place, He regards it as indispensable to the full moral influence of the doctrine of Christ's return that this catastrophe should be regarded as possible, nay probable, at any moment. This consideration may indeed justify such enunciations as Matthew chapter twenty four verse thirty seven and following, where Jesus admonishes to watchfulness because no one can know how soon the decisive moment may arrive. But by no means, such as chapter 24, verse 34, where he declares that within the term of the existing generation, all will be fulfilled. For one whose mind is in a healthy state, conceives the possible as possible, the probable as probable, and, if he wishes to abide by the truth, he so exhibits them to others. He, on the contrary, by whom the merely possible or probable is conceived as the real, is under a mistake. And he who, without so conceiving it himself, yet for a moral or religious object, so represents it to others, permits himself to use a pious fraud olshausen further avails himself of a position already noticed namely that the opinion that the advent of christ is at hand is a true one inasmuch as the entire history of the world is a coming of christ though not so as to exclude his final coming at the end of all things but if it is proved that jesus represented his literal final coming as near at hand while in fact only his figurative perpetual coming occurred in the period indicated he has confused these two modes of his coming the last argument which olshausen adduces that because the acceleration or delay of the return of christ depends on the conduct of men consequently on their free will his prophecy is only to be understood conditionally stands or falls with the first for to represent something conditional as unconditional is to create a false impression Seifert likewise regards the grounds on which olhausen seeks to free the assertions of jesus concerning his return from the imputation of error as inadequate nevertheless he holds it an impossibility to the christian consciousness to ascribe an erroneous expectation to jesus in no case would this furnish a warrant arbitrarily to sever from each other those elements in the discourse of jesus which refer to the nearer event from those which in our view refer to the more remote one rather if we had reasons for holding such an error on the part of jesus inconceivable we must deny in general that the discourses on the second advent in which those two sets of materials are so inextricably interwoven originated with him but looking from the orthodox point of view the question is not what will it satisfy the christian consciousness of the present day to believe or not to believe concerning christ but what stands written concerning christ and to this the above consciousness must accommodate itself as it best may considering the subject rationally however a feeling resting on presuppositions such as the so-called christian consciousness has no voice in matters of science and as often as it seeks to intermeddle with them is to be reduced to order by the simple reprimand mulier tatiat in ecclesia But have we no other grounds for questioning that Jesus really uttered the predictions contained in Matthew chapter 24 and 25 and parallel passages? In pursuing this inquiry, we may first take our stand on the assertion of supranaturalistic theologians that what Jesus here predicts, he could not know in the natural way of reasonable calculation, but only in a supernatural manner. Even the main fact that the temple would be destroyed and Jerusalem laid waste could not, according to this opinion, be so certainly foreknown. Who could conjecture, it is asked, that the Jews would carry their frantic obstinacy so far as to render such an issue inevitable? Who could calculate that precisely such emperors would send such procurators as would provoke insurrection by their baseness and pusillanimity still more remarkable is it that many particular incidents which jesus foretold actually occurred the wars pestilence earthquakes famines which he prophesied may be shown in the history of the succeeding times the persecution of his followers really took place the prediction that there would be false prophets and even such as would, by promises of miracles, allure the people into the wilderness. Matthew chapter 24, verses eleven, twenty-four and following, and parallel passages, may be compared with a strikingly similar passage from Josephus, describing the last times of the Jewish state. The encompassing of Jerusalem with armies, mentioned by Luke, with the trench, which he elsewhere chapter nineteen verse forty three and following speaks of as being cast about the city may be recognized in the circumstance recorded by josephus that titus caused jerusalem to be enclosed by a wall lastly it may also excite astonishment that the declarations there shall not be left one stone upon another in relation to the temple and they shall lay thee even with the ground luke chapter 19 verse 44 in relation to the city were fulfilled to the letter when on the orthodox point of view from the impossibility of foreseeing such particulars in a natural manner it is concluded that jesus had a supernatural insight into the future this conclusion is here attended not only with the same difficulty as above in connection with the announcement of his death and resurrection but with another also in the first place according to matthew chapter twenty four verse fifteen and mark chapter thirteen verse fourteen jesus represented the first stage of the catastrophe as a fulfilment of the prophecy of daniel concerning An abomination of desolation, and consequently referred Daniel chapter 9 verse 27, compare chapter 11 verse 31, chapter 12 verse 11, to an event at the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans. For what Paulus maintains, namely, that Jesus here only borrows an expression from Daniel without regarding that declaration of the prophet as a prophecy concerning something which in his time the time of jesus was still future is here rendered especially inconceivable by the addition let him that readeth understand now it may be regarded as an established point in the modern criticism and explanation of the old testament that the above passages in Daniel have reference to the desecration of the temple by Antiochus Epiphanes. Consequently, the interpretation of them, which the evangelists here lend to Jesus, is a false one. But to proceed to the difficulty which is peculiar to the prophecy in Matthew chapters 24 and 25, only one side of it, that relating to Jerusalem, has been fulfilled. The other, that relating to the return of Jesus and the end of the world, remains unfulfilled. Such a half-true prophecy as this cannot have been drawn by Jesus from his higher nature, and he must have been left, in this matter, to his human faculties. But that he should be able, by means of these, to foresee a result... Dependent on so many fortuities as was the destruction of Jerusalem, with its particular circumstances, appears inconceivable, and hence the conjecture arises that these discourses, in their definiteness which they now possess, were not uttered prior to the issue, consequently not by Jesus, but that they may have been put into his mouth as prophecies after the issue. Thus, Kaiser, for example, is of opinion that Jesus threatened a terrible fate to the temple and the nation by means of the Romans, conditionally, in case the nation did not accept salvation from the Messiah, and described this fate in prophetic types. But that the unconditional form and the more precise delineations were given to his discourse post eventum. Kredner also infers, from the circumstances, that incidents accompanying the destruction of Jerusalem are put into the mouth of Jesus as prophecies that the three first Gospels cannot have been composed before this event. It must certainly be supposed that the prophecy as we have it in the two first gospels was formed immediately after or even during the issue since here the appearance of the messiah is predicted as an event that would immediately succeed the fall of jerusalem which in later years could no longer be the expectation as this immediate chronological connection of the two catastrophes is not so expressly made by luke it has been supposed that this evangelist gives the prophecy as it was modified by experience that the messiah's advent and the end of the world had in no wise followed close on the destruction of jerusalem in opposition to these two opinions that the prophecy in question had a supernatural force and that it was only made after the issue it is sought in a third quarter To show that what is here predicted jesus might really have known in a natural way while on the one hand it is held in the highest degree astonishing that the result should have so closely corresponded with the most minute features of the prophecy of jesus on the other hand there are expositors by whom this correspondence is called into question the encompassing of jerusalem with armies say they, is precisely what Titus, according to Josephus, pronounces impossible to be effected. It is predicted that a trench would be cast about the city, while Josephus informs us that after the first attempt at forming an embankment had been rendered useless by an act of incendiarism on the part of the besieged, Titus desisted from his scheme of false messiahs arising in the interval between the death of jesus and the destruction of jerusalem history says nothing the commotions among nations and the natural phenomena in that period are far from being so important as they are here represented but above all in these prophecies especially as they are given in matthew and mark It is not the destruction of Jerusalem which is predicted, but solely that of the temple, plain divergencies of the prophecy from the result, which would not exist if either a supernatural glance into the future or a vaticinium post eventum were concerned. According to these theologians, we are on the wrong track in seeking the counterpart of these prophecies forwards in the result since it was backwards on types presented in the past that the authors looked a mass of such types was furnished by the jewish conception of the circumstances which would precede the advent of the messiah false prophets and messiahs war famine and pestilence earthquakes and commotions in the heavens prevalent corruption of manners persecution of the faithful servants of jehovah were held to be the immediate harbingers of the messianic kingdom moreover in the prophets there are descriptions of the tribulation which would presage and accompany the day of the coming of jehovah isaiah chapter 13 verse 9 and following joel chapter 1 verse 15 chapter 2 verse 1 and following verse 10 and following Chapter 3, verse 3 and following, Chapter 4, verse 15 and following, Zephaniah, chapter 1, verse 14 and following, Haggai, chapter 2, verse 7, Zechariah, chapter 14, verse 1 and following, Malachi, chapter 3, verse 1 and following, or which would precede the messianic kingdom of the saints, Daniel chapters 7 through 12 as also expressions in later Jewish writings, so analogous with our evangelical prediction, as to put it beyond question that the description which it gives of the time of the Messiah's advent is drawn from a circle of ideas which had long been current among the Jews. Another question is whether the principal feature in the picture before us The destruction of the temple and the devastation of Jerusalem, as introductory to the coming of the Messiah, may also be shown to have made part of the popular conception in the time of Jesus. In Jewish writings, we find the notion that the birth of the Messiah would coincide with the destruction of the sanctuary. But this idea was obviously first formed after the fall of the temple in order that a fountain of consolation might spring out of the lowest depth of misery. Josephus finds in Daniel, together with what relates to Antiochus, a prophecy of the annihilation of the Jewish state by the Romans. But as this is not the primary object in any of the visions in Daniel, Josephus might first make this interpretation after the issue, in which case, it would prove nothing as to the time of jesus nevertheless it is conceivable that already in the time of jesus the jews might attribute to the prophecies of daniel a reference to events yet future although these prophecies in fact related to a far earlier period and they might do so on the same grounds as those on which the christians of the present age still look forward to the full realization of matthew chapters twenty four and twenty five as immediately after the fall of the kingdom made of iron mixed with clay and of the horn that speaks blasphemies and makes war against the saints the coming of the son of man in the clouds and the commencement of the everlasting kingdom of the saints is prophesied while this result had not by any means succeeded the defeat of antiochus there was an inducement still to look to the future and not for the heavenly kingdom but also since they were made immediately to precede it for the calamities caused by the kingdom of iron and clay among which calamities by analogy with what was predicted of the horn the desecration of the temple was conspicuous. But while the prophecy in Daniel includes only the desecration of the temple and the interruption of the worship, together with the partial destruction of the city, in the discourse before us, complete destruction is predicted to the temple and likewise to the city, not merely in Luke, where the expressions are very marked, but undoubtedly in the two other evangelists also, as appears to be indicated by the exhortation to hasty flight from the city, which prediction of total destruction, as it is not contained in the type, can apparently have been gathered only from the result. But in the first place, the description in Daniel with the expressions shomem and yashchit chapter 9 verse 26 and following chapter 12 verse 11 which the septuagint translates as desolation and i destroy may easily be also understood of a total destruction and secondly if once in connection with the sins of the nation the temple and city had been destroyed and the people carried away captive every enthusiastic israelite to whom the religious and moral condition of his fellow-countrymen appeared corrupt and irremediable might thenceforth expect and predict a repetition of that former judgment according to this even those particulars in which as we have seen in the foregoing section luke surpasses his fellow-narrators in definiteness are not of a kind to oblige us to suppose either a supernatural foreknowledge or a vaticinium post eventum on the contrary all may be explained by a close consideration of what is narrated concerning the first destruction of jerusalem in second kings chapter twenty five second chronicles chapter thirty six And Jeremiah chapter 39, verse 52. There is only one point which Jesus, as the author of this discourse, could not have gathered from any types, but must have been drawn entirely from himself, namely, the declaration that the catastrophe which he described would arrive within the present generation. This prediction we must hesitate to derive from a supernatural knowledge for the reason already noticed that it is only half fulfilled while the other side of the fact the striking fulfillment of at least the one-half of the prophecy might incline us to distrust the supposition of a merely natural calculation and to regard this determination of time As a feature introduced into the discourse of jesus after the issue meanwhile it is clear from the passages cited at the conclusion of the last section that the apostles themselves expected the return of christ to take place within their lifetime and it is not improbable that jesus also believed that this event together with the ruin of the city and temple which according to daniel was to precede it was very near at hand the more general part of the expectation namely the appearing at some future time in the clouds of heaven to awake the dead to sit in judgment and to found an everlasting kingdom would necessarily from a consideration of daniel where such a coming is ascribed to the son of man be contemplated by jesus as a part of his own destiny so soon as he held himself to be the messiah while with regard to the time it was natural that he should not conceive a very long interval as destined to elapse between his first messianic coming in humiliation and his second in glory one objection to the genuineness of the synoptical discourses on the second advent is yet in reserve it has however less weight in our point of view than in that of the prevalent criticism of the gospels this objection is derived from the absence of any detailed description of the second advent of jesus in the gospel of john it is true that the fundamental elements of the doctrine of christ's return are plainly discoverable in the fourth gospel also jesus therein ascribes to himself the offices of the future judgment and the awaking of the dead john chapter 5 verses 21 through 30 which last is not indeed numbered among the concomitants of the advent of christ in the synoptical gospels but not seldom appears in that connection elsewhere in the new testament For example, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 23, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. When Jesus, in the fourth gospel, sometimes denies that he is to come into the world for judgment, chapter 3, verse 17, chapter 8, verse 15, chapter 12, verse 47, this refers only to his first presence on earth and is limited by opposite declarations in which he asserts that he is come into the world for judgment chapter 9 verse 39 compare with chapter 8 verse 16 to the sense that the object of his mission is not to condemn but to save and that his judgment is not individual or partial that it consists Not in an authoritative sentence proceeding subjectively from himself, but in an objective act proceeding from the intrinsic tendency of things, a doctrine which is significantly expressed in the Declaration, that him who hears his word without believing, he judges not, but the word which he has spoken shall judge him in the last day. Chapter 12, verse 48 Further, when the Jesus of John's Gospel says of the believer, He shall not come into judgment. Chapter 3, verse 18 Chapter 5, verse 24 This is to be understood of a judgment with a condemnatory issue, when, on the contrary, it is said of the unbeliever, He is judged already. Chapter 3, verse 18 This only means that the assigning of the merited lot to each is not reserved until the future judgment at the end of all things, since each one in his inward disposition bears within himself the fate which is his due. This does not exclude a future solemn act of judgment, wherein that which has at present only a latent existence will be made matter of awful revelation. For in the very passage, last quoted, we find the consignment to condemnation, and elsewhere, the awarding of future blessedness. Chapter 5, verse 28 and following, chapter 6, verse 39 and following, and verse 54. Associated with the last day and the resurrection. In like manner, Jesus says in Luke also, in the same connection in which he describes his return as a still future external catastrophe chapter seventeen verse twenty and following the kingdom of god cometh not with observation neither shall they say lo here or lo there for behold the kingdom of god is within you a certain interpretation of the words uttered by the jesus of john's gospel supposes him even to intimate that his return was not far distant the expressions already mentioned in the farewell discourses in which jesus promises his disciples not to leave them comfortless but after having gone to the father shortly chapter 16 verse 16 to come again to them chapter 14 verses 3 and 18 are not seldom understood of the return of Christ at the last day but when we hear jesus say of this same return that he will therein reveal himself only to his disciples and not to the world chapter 14 verse 19 compare with verse 22 it is impossible to think of it as a return to judgment in which jesus conceived that he should reveal himself to good and bad without distinction. There is a particularly enigmatical allusion to the coming of Christ in the Appendix to the Fourth Gospel, chapter 21. On the question of Peter as to what will become of the Apostle John, Jesus here replies, If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Verse 22. Whence, as it is added, the Christians inferred that John would not die, since they supposed the coming here spoken of to be the final return of Christ, in which those who witnessed it were to be changed without tasting death. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51 and following. But, adds the author correctively, Jesus did not say, The disciple would not die, but only if he willed that he should tarry till he came, what was that to Peter? Hereby, the evangelist may have intended to rectify the inference in two ways. Either it appeared to him erroneous to identify the remaining until Jesus came with not dying, that is, to take the coming of which Jesus here spoke for the last, which would put an end to death. And in that case, he must have understood by it an invisible coming of Christ, possibly in the destruction of Jerusalem. Or, he held it erroneous that what Jesus had only said hypothetically, even if he willed the given case that was no concern of Peter's, should be understood categorically as if such had really been the will of Jesus in which case the erkomai would retain its customary sense. If, according to this, all the main features of the doctrine of the Second Advent are put into the mouth of Jesus in the Fourth Gospel also, still we nowhere find anything of the detailed, graphic description of the external event, which we read in the Synoptical Gospels this relation between the two representations creates no slight difficulty on the ordinary view of the origin of the gospel and especially that of the fourth if jesus really spoke of his return so fully and solemnly as the synoptists represent him to have done and treated of the right knowledge and observation of the signs as something of the highest importance it is inconceivable that the author of the fourth gospel could pass over all this if he were an immediate disciple of Jesus. The usual mode of accounting for such an omission, by the supposition that he believed this part of the teaching of Jesus to be sufficiently known from the synoptical gospels or from oral tradition, is the more inadequate here in proportion as all which bears a prophetic character especially when relating to events at once so much longed for and dreaded is exposed to misinterpretation as we may see from the rectification just noticed which the author of john chapter 21 found it necessary to apply to the opinion of his contemporaries concerning the promise given by jesus to john thus in the present case an explanatory word would have been highly seasonable and useful, especially as the representation of the first gospel, which made the end of all things follow immediately on the destruction of Jerusalem, must be the more an occasion of doubt and offense the nearer the latter event came, and in a still greater degree when it was past. And who was more capable of affording such enlightenment then the favorite disciple particularly if according to mark chapter 13 verse 3 he was the only evangelist who had been present at the discourse of jesus on this subject hence here again a special reason for his silence is sought in the alleged destination of his gospel for non-judaical idealizing gnostics whose point of view those descriptions would not have suited and were therefore omitted but precisely in relation to such readers it would have been a culpable compliance a confirmation in their idealizing tendency had john out of deference to them suppressed the real side of the return of christ the apostle must rather have withstood the propensity of these people to evaporate the external, historical part of Christianity by giving due prominence to it, as, in his epistle, in opposition to their docetism, he lays stress on the corporeality of Jesus. So, in opposition to their idealism, he must have been especially assiduous to exhibit in the return of Christ the external facts by which it would be signalized. Instead of this, he himself speaks nearly like a Gnostic, and constantly aims, in relation to the return of Christ, to resolve the external and the future into the internal and the present. Hence, there is not so much exaggeration, as Olshausen supposes, in the opinion of Fleck, that the representation of the doctrine of Jesus concerning his return in the Synoptical Gospels, And that given in the fourth exclude each other, for if the author of the fourth gospel be an apostle, the discourses on the second advent which the three first evangelists attribute to Jesus cannot have been so delivered by him, and vice versa. We, however, as we have said, cannot avail ourselves of this argument having long renounced the presupposition that the fourth gospel had an apostolic origin. But, on our point of view, we can fully explain the relation which the representation of the fourth gospel bears to that of the synoptists. In Palestine, where the tradition recorded by the three first gospels was formed, the doctrine of a solemn advent of the Messiah, which was there prevalent, and which jesus embraced was received in its whole breadth into the christian belief whereas in the hellenistic theosophic circle in which the fourth gospel arose this idea was divested of its material envelopment and the return of christ became the ambiguous medium between a real and an ideal a present and a future event Which it appears in the fourth gospel. End of section 116.